Just up top here, we want to say that this is a pretty hard one. It's hard for a lot of reasons, and you probably know that we'll touch on a lot of subjects like this on this podcast because of what it's about, but today's film is almost Baroque in its depiction of Nazi war crimes, and we're going to talk about them. So maybe don't listen with the kids in the car. It's 1977, and Belarusian director Elam Klimov began work on what, eight years later, would finally become today's shocking, unflinching portrayal of a boy who lives through the Nazi invasion of Belarus and subsequent systematic extermination of the inhabitants of over 600 villages in that country by the occupying Germans. When we talk about films that do not mince the issue of the horrors of war, this one is right up there. The plot is pretty simple. Our main character is a young boy named Floria, who is too young to be a soldier. He is a pretty simple kid living a very rustic pre-industrial existence in a Soviet republic that is basically steamrolled by the Nazis. And what we see are a handful of moments in his life before the Nazis arrive, in which he exhibits a vague sense that he would like to participate in the attempt to repel them. And then a harrowing series of days or weeks or months, that part's a little unclear. After the invasion, we watch through Floria's eyes. We see the horrors that the Nazis visit upon the people of Belarus, and that's everything up to and including rape and mass murder. One of the defining images of the film is an entire town's population herded into a church that is then burned to the ground almost in real time, as we hear the victims wailing inside. In the film, Floria has a counterpart in Glasha, a girl who is about his age, and we don't spend the entire movie with her, but we are made to understand that what befalls her might be even worse than what Floria goes through. And while the camera almost never turns away from the horror, its interest in that horror is never purient. It never feels like an action movie. The violence is never awesome. Klimov, as a director, is making a powerful, deeply considered statement about what the war meant to his people and elucidating an episode of the war in which the Nazis went out of their way to erase entire villages from existence. Their actions are shocking, and their attitude about them is even more shocking. The German units are barely organized gangs of psychopaths who love doing what they are doing. We were only able to find this movie in standard definition, and it seems like the version that we watched might be an illegal YouTube upload, which is a shame, because while it is very hard to watch, this film should be watched, because the horror exists in the context of a masterwork. This is a filmmaker in full control telling a story that is very hard to tell. Alexei Kravchenko, the young actor who plays Floria, undergoes as shocking a transformation in this film as any actor in the history of film. Every performance, despite coming from a cast of mostly amateurs, is flawless. Every camera move is justified. Every special effect is blisteringly real feeling, and the film culminates in a moment of pure art, the likes of which we have not previously experienced on this show. Are you laughing? You won't be laughing for long today on Friendly Fire. Come and see. Yeah. 
Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast whose hosts are never going to dig in sand for anything ever again. <laughs> I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I, I already followed that, uh, that, that general rule. <laughs> you don't dig in sand? Don't dig just in out sand. out of principle? Don't dig in sand. Right. I mean, it's, uh, it's nasty when it gets under your fingernails. Yeah, you don't know what's in there. Flora has basically the worst unpaid internship experience of all time, right? <laughs> uh, I read that they they made this film in chronological order. Yeah, and uh, and they they you know they found this poor non actor teenage boy who they were like, let's put him through all this in order, and then film his gradual like degradation. It's more literal than most movies, right. I think. Like they're using like live ammunition in this movie. Yeah, the actor mentions that in that scene in the field where he's ducking down with a cow, like those bullets and tracers are going over his head no further than a foot away. It's crazy. And he, by all accounts, he grew up to be a working actor as an adult and his experience did not ruin his life. Like... Like you could imagine happening after an experience like this. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, there were no professional actors in this movie, it should be said. Is that true? Not no professional actors. None. Wow, this kid is he's in he's in movies coming out in 2019. Yeah. I think the young actor is basically the same age I am. So this will give you a sense of how old I was when this movie came out. I was the same oldness as this teenage boy. Elam Klimov, the film's director, mentions that the reason that he wanted to use non-professional actors was because an actor has a technology to protect themselves against the part that they're playing or the circumstances that they're performing in that he intentionally did not want. He wanted the safeties off of all of these performances. The way the boy looks at the end... I was thinking to myself before I'd read anything about the movie, wow, like there are many things that are amazing about this film, but perhaps the most amazing thing is the is the like hair and makeup effects that they are yeah. doing to this kid to make him look harried. And then I read that that, that was not an effect at all. He, yeah. he like ate a diet that deprived him of vital nutrients. Like his hair actually went white. While they shot this film. Yeah, he looks calcified by the end of it. It's incredible. It's, uh, ethically speaking, not great, but... Uh, well, they wore an onion in their belt because it was the style of the time. Not a, not a union <laughs> production, I don't think. Well, it was a union of Soviet socialist <laughs> production. <laughs> Woo! Oh, that was just lying there like a ripe cantaloupe. And yeah. Ben grabbed it and ran it in for a touchdown. I, I grabbed it and put it in my belt because it's the style right now. <laughs> Just a few minutes into the Come and See episode of Friendly Fire, and it's been a laugh riot. <laughs> <laughs> well, this movie, talk about, you know, the, the last film we reviewed, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, we were looking at it as a propaganda film and trying to tease out the ways in which it would have been effective as a propaganda movie, what it was trying to propagandize. 
And yeah. this movie is an entirely different kind of propaganda movie. Not exactly a recruiting tool <laughs> or the army. <laughs> no. Well, here's the thing. Like, is there a definition of propaganda that, that does not attract and instead is meant to revolt? Well, Webster's defines propaganda. <laughs> Are you writing Adam's term papers for him now? <laughs> This is something that the director and the screenwriter talked about. They're like, no one's ever going to see this movie. You know that, right? Right. And the, they came to an agreement where it was like, it doesn't matter if no one sees it. This needs to be in the record. The story needs to be told. Yeah. Yeah. I had a very strange and probably compromised viewing of this film because uh, I, I just had too much on my plate and I had to... I had to go up to the Bay Area this week to help my parents uh, pack their house up. They're getting ready to move overseas for a year. And so my viewing of this film was about 45 minutes at the airport, about 30 minutes on the airplane. And then the remaining hour I watched like on my phone on the way home from the airport in the, in the ride chair. So, uh, when you finally got to your parents' house, were you able to convince them not to move to Belarusia? <laughs> not exactly the uh, the way the director intended, but also we only have access to this movie in standard def. Right. Despite this having been like a big hit when it came out, it's not on streaming services in anything better than VHS quality. Producer's note. At the time of this recording, Come and See was not available to stream in HD. It is now available on the Criterion channel. I've put a link in the episode description. A Soviet production. It was pretty stunning, despite all of the kind of distractions of the, of the way I watched it. And I wanted to talk to you guys about the sound design, because a big part of this movie is what he's hearing. Or not hearing. Or not hearing, yeah. And and it, it's not a movie that, like, babies you. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you what to think about what you're seeing. So the first time somebody says he's gone deaf is 20 or 30 minutes after the big bombing that has caused him to go deaf. And you're just, you're just left to experience this muted and at times, like, very gratingly you know like you hear they're simulating tinnitus in the soundtrack it's gonna be extremely unpleasant at times to watch this movie like this movie does not want you to be comfortable watching it do you really have asmr no because <laughs> you mentioned that before uh there's actually recently some laws have been passed that you have to mention asmr if you have a podcast oh i see if you are ASMR or whatever, also Hamilton. <laughs> if you if you like Hamilton or have ASMR, I'm not sure whether you have it, you are it, you listen for it. But this movie, the sound design is incredibly uh, awful. I mean, it, and and intentionally so. But like the like the voices are all dubbed. So there's that weird quality. We're not we're watching it in a foreign language already, but then there's that weird quality that feels like almost a Godzilla movie where the sound of the voices is sort of close mic'd in a studio even when they're out yeah. in a field and people are doing strange voices like the 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 little kid at the beginning of the movie who's talking like this 
It's like, why is yeah, he doing that? Yeah, I was that? like, oh, is there something wrong with this YouTube video when, when it started? <laughs> that must have some significance. I think he was imitating the old man, but yeah. it's not clear why, and it, and he keeps doing it, and it's just like, that, that happens many times in the movie where what's happening in the sound is either intentionally or unintentionally causing nervousness and distress in you, the the viewer. Like I had to turn the volume down after a while because I'm reading the subtitles. I'm getting the picture, but I just couldn't handle this like right in my ears, sort of like kind of kind of energy there was to what was happening. This film really deserves the criterion treatment and it just doesn't look like it looks like Criterion has talked about re-releasing it. There has been a remastering done of the film, but it hasn't been released in America. Wow. I mean, I think we're going to talk around this a little bit come review time, but it's a film that is deserving of, if you're going to see it, the best version of it. Did you have problems watching it, Adam? Were you? I mean, you sent us a link at one point that was to a YouTube version of it that was really compromised. Yeah, and I'm glad that we were able to find a YouTube link that was that was less compromised than that, but still uh, kind of an imperfect way to see what I think is a pretty important film to see. Yeah, Like a lot of war films, the sound design in this film was super affecting and effective. The sound's relationship to the visual was another thing that I, that, that really got to me. And I think a big part of that was Fiora's facial expressions sometimes not matching up with what's happening around him. Like Hmm. he's smiling a lot, especially in the first quarter of the film. And it made me wonder if he wasn't a little mentally compromised before, before his story begins. I'm not talking about the actor. I'm talking about the character. Like as he's conscripted into the war, he's smiling there in a way that made me very uncomfortable. And then he smiles later on in in parts of the film during parts where he should be horrified. And that disconnect between what we're seeing and what we're hearing was a way that this film projects discomfort. To me, the, it seemed to me that the director was very interested in that liminal space between crying and laughing. Yeah. There's so many times when a character is crying or laughing and then switches to the other in the middle. Right. And yeah, you're right. The the main facial expression, like the the signature facial expression of this movie is that is that middle one where you can't tell which it is. Yeah. And this movie is not telling you what to think about it or how to feel about it. It's it, it really like lets you lets you dangle on the uncertainty of it all. And it doesn't cut away either. Like you never get a break from the worst parts of the film by virtue of an edit. Like you linger there and stare at it for a long time. John, at the end of our last episode, you speculated that this movie might be comparable to Fires on the Plain in terms of being a hard movie to watch. And I think that that I found that to be very apt in watching it. I think it's mostly apt in that it's it is a hard movie to watch and a hard movie to know how to feel about. 
you know, in Fires on the Plain, we're watching Japanese soldiers in the army as the army runs out of supplies as they as it falls apart in front of us. And they're and they resort to kind of um you know, doing anything they can to survive. But we have the context at least that they were in the army. Right? When we when we first meet them, they're in uniform. There is a certain amount of discipline and rank. There's a project. And watching this movie, it it struck me that most of the war movies we see, we have at least that much structure to get inside the heads of the characters or to at least try right. and put ourselves like, okay, I'm in the Japanese army now and discipline is breaking down, but like there's a starting point. But this is a movie about a teenage boy who was already living in a, in a like tumble down house with dirt floors in the middle of the steps, already living a subsistence living. And then at what was at the time, the greatest mechanized army in the world invades your country for reasons unclear and basically just starts killing everyone. And it's, it was so hard for me to even get, myself into that forest in the first place because this isn't an army that you enlisted in. This is like quick, go dig up some rifles out of the sand. And you know, it's basically like stay here in this house and get murdered or join us and get murdered or get left behind and get murdered. Go on your own and get murdered. Like everyone's going to end up murdered. So so good luck yeah it's a two-page choose your own adventure book. that's it <laughs> open the door leaflet. oh you got murdered yeah don't open the door oh you got murdered i did not ever feel like the protagonist and i were together i was never him nor was i anyone else i was just a like in, a, in some ways an unwilling witness which i think is maybe what the filmmakers were were trying to trying to do it struck me that the opening of this film, and I, I, I think the script was written in like 1977, and it took a really long time to get made because of Soviet censorship. But the first few beats of this film have a weirdly large amount in common with Star Wars. Hmm. Like it's it's the kid in the desert, you know, like in the sand, and then he like tries to go on an adventure and when he comes back his parents are dead who's writing a film studies paper now wow i mean like it is really uh a a tenuous connection but but that you know that image of the bodies heaped against the barn that i think only only the girl sees right yeah yeah there's this there's the sound design where everybody's going <laughs> you know that scene was had a unique piece of sound design also which were the flies the mm. sounds of those flies were so pervasive in the village like it's a base human instinctual reaction to that sound that is so unsettling like you, you don't have control over how you feel when there's fly sound happening it's true right it's dreadful it's evocative of nothing good. Yeah. And then weirdly he goes through that bug and then that, that little eye pops up 
and then the, <laughs> the walls start closing yeah. in. Chewie, get us so, out of here. A lot of a lot of comparisons can be made between this and Star Wars. Galasha was was his sister the whole time. <laughs> Do you guys have a uh, a reoccurring fantasy over the course of your lives that you would at some point be a member of a partisan group? Only in the last like couple of years has that occurred to me that that might happen. <laughs> but you know, it's a it's a it's a pretty common fantasy for people, and especially in our modern day, where you imagine that the government is going to collapse and it's going to be some kind of you're going to you're going to be part of a a valiant little troop that is defending your way of life against. It's kind of a Red Dawn adjacent fantasy, isn't it? Yeah, right. And but also, I mean, every video game, every every, I mean, Game of Thrones or whatever, you're always the the. It is a common protagonist situation that you are in a in a kind of makeshift forest camp, surrounded by bad guys that you don't have any sympathy for that are you know that are just coming in the night. But this is this does a great job of demystifying almost every element of what that would actually be like it there's no fantasy involved because this actually happened and happened more than 600 times well yeah and the partisan group is a bunch of fucking idiots it's not like an organized military enterprise of any kind it doesn't seem like they have a good plan no, there's no plan, right? Like their their plan to like guard their base camp is like leave the kid. This whole movement on the part of the Germans, right? The way we think about them moving into invading Russia. But you know, in order to invade Russia, they had to go across Belarusia and and Ukraine. And these are, you know, enormous countries with lots and lots of people in them. And some of the comments I've heard about the Nazis as they went across Ukraine were that the Ukrainians were not any great fan of the Russians. I'm not going to come out and say that they greeted the Germans as liberators, but there's been a lot of speculation that if the Germans had entered Ukraine and had behaved as though the Ukrainians were allies, that they could have had a much easier way. Um, But... The German mentality was, and we see it later in the in the movie, that all of these people, all of the Slavs and also the Jews and all the people living in this country were just waste people. It's almost as if racism is kind of a maladaptive trait. It's a strange it's a strange thing, but yes, you're right. It doesn't racism doesn't allow you to Although now, right, I mean, the last thing that you would that you would hear from a contemporary racist was that that Slavs were his enemy. I would right. say most American uh, racists. It's almost as if racism is not an internally consistent ideology. That's like the the hipster racist. Yeah, the steampunk right. racist would would really be the anti-Slav. Yeah, <laughs> but but so as they came through Belarus, I think they imagined they were just clearing this land for for the Germans, right? This was the this was the Lebensraum, the this was the area that that the German people were going to expand into and create a larger German Reich, and so they made no attempt to preserve anything. 
Kind kind of the opposite, right? I mean, that's kind of the inspiration for the film is to show this kind of sub-genocide that was committed within World War II. There's a way that this film depicts the horror that really feel like, you know how like when you went to high school and you saw the video footage of the Jewish internment camps and like the open trenches full of malnourished dead bodies being like pushed in with fucking earth moving equipment. Like you see the horror of that being done by the Nazis. But I think if there's anything missing from that, that I think needs to be shown in that very same class, it's the fucking glee that these Nazis felt in so doing those atrocities. And that's what this film does. I feel like if more people saw the joy that that brought a certain type of person, it would be a lot less fucking popular to both sides a Nazi argument in contemporary time. The Nazis in this movie really reminded me of like the gangs in Mad Max universe. Right. Well, and, and they were. The Nazis as depicted in this movie were members of what was known as the Derlevanger uh, group. Oscar Derlevanger, and I'm, uh, you know, he can be, per- I, I don't know the German pronunciation, but let's say Derlevanger. How much respect do we need to pay this man, John? Derlevanger. Uh, he was a soldier who was a criminal and was close to some, you know, close to some member of the SS who was close to Himmler, and he got himself rehabilitated at some point and given a group of given, given the authority to put together a group of soldiers out of convicted criminals. And at first it was a group that was just made up of like, uh, not white collar crime, but like poachers and people that were, you know, somewhat respectable forest criminals. And as the <laughs> as the war progressed, is this an is this an Ewoks comparison? Are we bringing this back to Star Wars? They're just forest criminals. They're just you know they were like poaching squirrels. But as the war progressed, in the forests of Endor, there are the criminals <laughs> who exist in the forest and the law enforcement community that brings them to justice. These are their stories. <laughs> but as the war progressed, he was given more and more actual criminals to fill his ranks until he was recruiting from uh, from the, the murderers and rapists and criminally insane of the German prison population. And the strategic idea was that, that the German, the, the German army would send these guys in and basically they were expendable. Go ahead. What mean expendable? Thank you. Uh, but your heart really wasn't in that bit, (laughs) but in Belarus in particular, they became like the main, the main spearhead of the army. Um, they were, they were actually like drunk and insane and raping like, like, uh, pathological. And what, what happened was when this, when this Derlevanger army, ever actually came up against the real Soviet army at any point in time, they were just absolutely wiped out, right? They couldn't actually fight 
against an organized army. They had no discipline. They had no skill, but used as a used as an instrument against civilian populations where they couldn't defend themselves. They would just come in and, and they had no compunction about burning an entire village inside of a church and, you know, like murdering babies. And I was listening to an episode of uh, stuff you should know our buddies, uh, Josh and Chuck, and they were talking about the, uh, widespread use of methamphetamine and and similar in the German army, and I wonder like with that interacting with how much alcohol is clearly being used by these guys in this movie and their their the psychopathy they had going in. I mean, like like it it really adds up. It is not hard to see why a group so composed would be willing to do things as horrifying as this, and also that they would suck when it came to actual combat i mean like they the it's the partisans that that stop them in the end right and the force multiplier on that is is the mob rule too on top right. of everything like there's a whole lot i think within the within the eastern european sphere that feels like the war world war ii has been misrepresented in popular entertainment and there's that i think a like throughout the 20th century, a feeling of being wronged by the fact that the Americans were the ones that were for the most part telling the story. Right. And in our version of the story, the Russians are always, you know, we don't see them until the end of the movie when they meet us in Berlin or, you know, we, every once in a while we'll, you know, there will be a peripheral Russian part of a thing. But for the most part, we don't show that side. And so that those scenes where the Germans are behaving like a motorcycle gang and there are multiple shots where someone will just look right into the camera and just go like, Rawr! where you, where you think like, wow, they're really, who, who is this for? Like, and, and, and you feel like it's for that domestic audience in the SSRs where they're finally getting they're 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 finally seeing their story told and the and the bad guys are truly bad these aren't these aren't german officers in a castle speaking in british accents these are like monsters like like some of the worst monsters we've ever seen in a movie pov as a technique can be used to do a lot of things but i don't I can't think of another film where POV made it feel as much of a documentary as this film did. That seems like the consequence of that of that compositional choice to me. It made it scarier versus be, versus being stylish. Yeah, I, I started to feel out of breath in some of those scenes because we're just running and running and running and running. I mean, there's so much weird camera work in this movie, too. Long, long shots where it pans and... It'll like leave the action for a while and like go find something else and then come back. Very surreal, almost kind of impressionistic. Yeah, really, yeah. really impressionistic. So my question to you guys is how much of that is intentional genius? How much of it is accidental genius? And how much of it is just like bad filmmaking that that somehow worked? Boy, I, I really... I don't know uh, this director's work outside of this film, but to me, this felt 
like the work of a filmmaker who is in total control of his of his craft. Yeah. This was his mic drop film too. He did this and no films after. It was done. Yeah. Um I think that the things that lead me to believe that are the feeling that like what I'm experiencing watching it feels like exactly what he wants me to be experiencing watching it. Um, the technical complexity. I mean, there are shots with 300 people all doing different shit mm-hmm. several times in this film. They're just incredibly complicated compositions and setups. Um, Which are hard think- enough to do with semi-professional background actors. These are just people. Right. And then the, the, the use of symbolism, like all the, all the different animals and birds and the, the loris you see in this film, like you, you really have to know what you're doing to get away with like having like long takes of a loris crawling under a Nazi helmet and have it actually feel meaningful and like germane to the movie. It felt like this film was a contemporary of Apocalypse Now in that way. It really yeah. felt like Apocalypse Now so many different times. That yeah. that, stra- that kind of magic. You're not sure with whether what is being depicted is so incredible that this is real and documentary or whether it's crossed over into a into a world where you can't really rely on reality anymore. And I guess that's consistent with the journey of our main character, right? Like these are these are impressions that we get that increase in frequency as the film goes on. Yeah, in, they increase in frequency and intensity, I think. Yeah. Past a certain point, you cannot imagine him integrating back into life. Although at, in the final scene, right. he shoulders his rifle and he joins the partisans and and you kind of get the feeling like, oh, every single one of those people in that group has seen all these same things. So they do end up being the shopkeepers and the moms and dads of the future. But they have undergone this unspeakable trauma that is going to stay with them throughout that. We're not entirely sure whether he is, you know, like fully cognizant. Right. He seems like he's older than the other little boy. But the other little boy seems to be kind of in charge. Yeah, bossing yeah. him around. And I wondered if the implication was that he had some kind of developmental dis- delay or, you know. I mean, he's a he's a peasant. He's a serf, essentially. And that, that makes it hard to know, like, or hard to follow his journey through the, through the third act. Because he's just witnessing yeah. all this insanity and he survives it maybe partly because... Maybe they look at him and they don't see enough threat in his eyes that they feel he's worth yeah. killing. I mean, we see several moments like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so how much of the horror does he really take with him after he starts marching again, right? I mean, how we don't see him 10 years later. Obviously, the horror doesn't wash off of him. He's not smiling in the last third. In fact, he's right. the he's the one that's that says Jacques about the Nazis. He steps forward and says these are the ones. It's a, it's the only moment where he really seems to be kind of in in control of or like trying to take control of a situation. Yeah, rather than be subject to it or someone else's interests. Although he yeah. brings that gas can 
And it's clear, like, he got the gas can and brought it over here for a reason, which is to right. burn these guys alive. And then even that plan is kind of kind of thwarted in the sense that, that everybody's just so mad, so ready for them to die that they don't even, they can't even wait to watch them burn. That was, that was a real do the right thing moment in reverse <laughs> where I was yeah. like, didn't, why, I, why didn't you burn them alive? That seems like, I mean, maybe it would have been hard to film. The bridge would have been in trouble if they'd done that, crowded under that wooden bridge. Not a moment where a lot of people are thinking two or three steps ahead, though. Yeah. I'll shoot it down. They don't. Come on, don't. The uh, airplane that that reappears several times in the film is that a familiar airplane to you guys? No, it's a it's an unusual like a spotter plane. One of our listeners sent me an encyclopedia of world aircraft, and I, th- I think that it's a Fokker GI, GIA or GIB. Wow, listen to you. Just based on looking at the picture. but um, Oh, look at that. I've never seen it depicted in a film. Wow, that book came in handy. That, that looks like that might be the one. It's sort of implied that that's the plane that does the bombing in the forest, but that would have been artillery, right? I think artillery is what that was meant to be. Yeah, the plane was spotting and then directing artillery. Boy, those explosions in that forest are some of the scariest explosions we've seen in doing this show, I think. They're incredible. It's incredible. It's so harrowing and it's so, I mean, there's a real real explosion, scary explosions. The thing that sells the fear for me about that sequence there are a couple of sequences that do it so the the explosions are approaching the camera and the camera moves to tell the viewer that there's an operator of that camera behind it right and this guy's got to get the fuck out of the way it's doubly terrifying to to see that and to hear it and to know that there's someone right there experiencing it i think another comparison to fires on the plane is that every time you think this guy has kind of solved his problem or gotten gotten out of trouble uh it you're wrong right. <laughs> like and that and that that's like kind of the first moment of that or or maybe the second um because he's you know he's been told he's not going to to the front with the other partisans and he's kind of having this strange emotional meet weird with uh <laughs> Glasha, and then these explosions start and like you you get the sense that they're stuck in this forest for like a kind of a long time too i mean consider that the forest is is what is providing safety given that the villages are so dangerous yeah and like the other thing that happens when those bombs start going off is that the camera kind of loses track of them for a long time and we've talked a lot about like knowing where things are relative to other things in an action sequence. Mm-hmm. And in, in this sequence, you lose them and and nothing makes sense anymore. And it feels totally intentional. Yeah. Like the the craziness of what they're experiencing feels like what the filmmaker is going for. Yeah. Using the thing that we dislike in other films as a as a utility here. Right, as, a, as, as one of the tools of storytelling. Yeah, well done. The kind of senseless path that he follows through this film. I mean, but it's not, it's not a thing where, where you get a feeling like he's just tumbling from unsafe thing to unsafe thing because there just doesn't seem to be, he's not on a path. It's, 
And I think that is a really effective, like really effective screenwriting to take what, what our mind wants, which is to find some inevitability to his journey. It's that thing of like, when you hear somebody dies from cancer, oh, what kind of cancer? Lung cancer. Oh, well, he smoked. Right. I don't smoke. I feel safe. Yeah, right. Or, you know, or he didn't smoke. Well, he lived next to a smoker. I mean, you're always trying to figure something. Right. It's it's the narrative, uh, the narrative fallacy. And almost every movie is... Is, is pro-narrative because narrative is what we go to movies to get. <laughs> and this, th- this does such a brilliant job of giving you nothing, no safe place. And at the end of the movie, you don't get a feeling that he isn't going to die in an hour. And he's not even special as a witness to atrocity because everybody is also witnessing atrocity. So I think that's really deft to keep us off balance through an entire movie and never once never once gives us a footing where we can where we can just stand and and uh and feel like we know the world we're in. Yeah, and and like in Fires on the Plane when it ends, it ends cuz he's dead. And in this movie it it doesn't feel like it ends. It feels like this is just going to keep happening to him. I mean, the Animal House ending to this film does tell us that he goes on to <laughs> become Senator Blutarski. Yeah. <laughs> that scene with the cow and that angle on its eye as it's dying, I Oof. found as affecting as anything else in the film because there was so much time before that moment and after that moment. And I'm setting aside for a moment the scene in the church that's boarded up with the people inside where. You are allowed to experience fear for the first time in a long time through that cow's death. And and it's because the people in this film are so broken that you rarely see fear before death. You just see death. And that moment with the cow, I thought, came at a really specific time and a really effective time, a time when we needed to see what fear was lest we become too acclimated to the circumstance i thought that was really well done and unique to this film like we've seen like the comparison again to apocalypse now the death of the buffalo of the water buffalo at the end of that film we don't see the fear of that animal the way that we do here and hear it too i mean yeah the cow groans for for a minute. Yeah. A minute of dead cowboy. Yeah. And then the kid goes, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. <laughs> this show is inexcusable. We're doing the best we can. I don't know why joviality is of such paramount importance to me. <laughs> <laughs> we spend so much time uh, when we think of World War II trying to imagine the great calamities of it. There are so many kind of unspeakable calamities within the framework of world war two. And even if you don't, even if you don't focus on the Holocaust and just think about the deaths of the deaths from starvation or the deaths from, you know, the collateral uh, bombing and, and the scope of the war 
it's all very overwhelming. It's why we're so still so so fixated on it in the 21st century. It's just not comparable to anything else, and also it's a window into how bad things can get in a lot of different ways. You know, a lot of what makes World War II brutality so studyable or so fascinating is that it that it's connected to mechanization and German record keeping and technology, gas and missiles and all these fancy new weapons and all that, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's posited that you couldn't do a Holocaust on the scale of the Holocaust until you had railroads and administration and, you know, even prototype computers. Yeah. The brutality of this, of the, this experience in Belarus is so primitive. It's just like, we're going to herd the villagers into this barn and set it on fire. And the only technology we're using is, is rifles in the context of this war that we're used to thinking of as being so technological. I think it's even more striking how primitive it feels. Yeah, how primitive it feels and how primitive the Germans feel even in spite of the fact that we know behind them is some war-making machine that's making V2 rockets or whatever somewhere somewhere behind the scenes, but they are also dirty and coarse and and primitive. You know, you see their insanity, you see their criminal. Their methods are primitive, but their motivations are as modern as ever. Well, what are their motivations? I mean, their motivations just seem to be like thrill of murder and rape. Is that not the motivation of a modern Nazi? Is extermination not their final solution? Oh, but there's, I mean, it feels like there's only one German in that entire group that has any ideology at all. It's just that young officer who gives his racism speech. Everybody else just seems to be just they're just wilding which is the which is the i think the point i'm trying to make like we think of that like final solution as being a thing full of sort of blonde officers standing around being inhumane but this is just you I mean if you took the if you took the stripes off their uniforms this is just a bunch of barbarians right just ogres activated by an officer that has an ideology but their ideology right. is just give me food, give me someone to rape and will let me watch. Let me be, let me take a part in this murder because murder is its own reward almost. That's what's so brutal. And that, and, and I feel like that's what casts a different light on, you know, when you do Holocaust studies, you can't just focus on the officers because there are a lot of people who's just, who just had a, the daily mundane job of walking people into a furnace and then they went and had a beer and played some cards with their coworkers. Right. Like none of the people that are in that huge crowd of Germans that's standing around listening as the, as the church burns and hearing the people screaming inside of it for 20 minutes is going to like lose sleep over it that night. Right. No, they're digging it. They're having a party. A literally yeah, there's a, party. a guy with a truck and a sound system playing music. You know, we, we try and figure out, like, how could six million Jews, for the most part, walk into the concentration camps, right? I mean, d- there, are, there are plenty of groups of partisans who, who said no, 
But in most cases, it was like, no, 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 we're just moving you to another location. So everybody on the train, and then you get off the train, it's like, okay, well, we're just going to go in through this gate. So, you know, men over here, women over there. And there's this kind of passivity to the way groups of people move when confronted yeah. with orders. And you, you, you maintain that like hope springs eternal, even as they're, even as you're being forced into a barn or a church, you know, a log church where there's no possible good outcome. Yeah. There's all those like mundane, like you need like a toothbrush and <laughs> some your shoe polish in order to go to Germany and just everybody come over here having a town meeting. Right. And it's clear that there's no one, you know, none of these Germans are capable of taking you back to Germany in an organized fashion. Like, but none of the men ever like link arms and say, I would rather die fighting than burn to death in a barn. You know, there's no, there, there's never a sense of organized rebellion. And I think that's, that's accurate. It's true. Right. Our instinct in a group like that is to just be like, don't, you know, like maybe if I just go along here, I'll be fine. Because the consequence of turning around and saying like, no, fight me now is that you would die immediately rather than right. have three more minutes of life or something. This is super painful. I mean, what do you, do you guys put yourself in those villages and try to imagine what you would do? I mean, I, I did. And, and I felt like I was, I was trying to picture it and in some ways coming up short because I think that my, my world feels much bigger than the world of these people. I mean, I, I was also just trying to imagine what it was like to live in that village not in a wartime, right? You know? To be a serf in Belarus, you're just a subsistence farmer in an ancient village that has probably had a couple hundred people living in it for the last five hundred years or whatever, and then suddenly the most technologically advanced army wants your arable land, so they're just going to come through and burn everybody alive. <laughs> like it's kind of hard to picture. I mean, the thing you're saying about the the what, what's the breaking point? When do all the men turn and link arms and 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 say no further? That feels like a very present and contemporary concern. Like, at what point do you do you go dig a rifle out of the sand and go into the forest and and prosecute some kind of resistance movement? Because it seems like. It seems like a question worth asking some days, but um, a, a lot of the lifestyle of of these people is very is very hard to put yourself in. I mean, like we talk about, like the boys. He seems it's hard for us to even know if he is developmentally delayed or just a rustic and unsophisticated child, right? Because we're snobby coastal elites. <laughs> well, the way other people treat him gives us some clues there's there's Cossack who barely has a moment to give him the teachable moment of you know always ask for the password or shoot like he he has a moment to teach and then he's gone and then there's there's Glasha who is so unhinged herself at what has happened to her like there's no there's no baseline way of being to compare Flora to which is why it's so hard to keep track of where he might be on a spectrum, right? Like, because everyone is so wildly out of, out of any, out of any mean, 
right? Right. Uh, was that Glasha that showed up at the end with like the fork coming out of her mouth? Unclear. She said the same lines. Uh, I just want to find love and have a family. And then that that girl at the end says the same things. And it looked enough like her that the movie doesn't give you any more hint than that. But She's so destroyed that it's really hard to tell. Yeah. That's another question. Like, how does a woman come back from that? Because I think in a lot of movies, if they subject someone to that much, they do us all the favor of killing them. Or, right. you know what I mean? Or that's that's the language that movies use. They don't let you walk out of a theater and think, oh, that, you know, that girl has to get up in the morning and find some food. That's the stuff that feels the most realistic almost, is that people just get, I mean, you know, terrible, terrible, terrible crime inflicted on them. And then they, and there's nothing about them where it's like, and then the spirit of humans gets up and goes about her you know there's nothing heroic about it it's just like yeah the end of this film is a title card that says as bad as this was multiply it 628 times and you'll come close to the real scale of it right i mean think of all the people that escaped from a village that this happened to to the next village where it also happened and that person escaped again to the next village where it also happened and then they escaped again and in the fourth village they were killed and we never we'll, right. we'll never see their story, you know. Like they lived the most harrowing month of that any human being had ever done, and then they ended up just burning alive in a church. There's a unique sequence in this film that I think we need to discuss before rating it, and that is the scene where Flora notices the framed portrait of Adolf Hitler uh, in the street, and then shoots it. And what we get is a montage of clips from Hitler's life. And those clips are playing in reverse, like buildings are being reverse bombed and put back into place. Uh, People are marching in reverse. It's like undoing the war. But that montage ends when Hitler's a baby. And it's at that point that Flora cannot shoot he stops shooting at that moment and walks away and cries this movie was originally titled kill hitler it was like one of the only things that the soviet censors made him change about the movie so as as famously against that scene in inglorious bastards i would imagine that you're against this scene right when it started, uh, I didn't understand what was happening and not in a good way, right? I mean, this movie had done so many things up until now. And were we really going to were we really going to go out on him shooting a picture of Hitler and us watching Hitler walk backwards? This it, was the moment this film turned into an art film. Like it never telegraphed this moment. But as it went on and on, it compounded and compounded the effect until I was hypnotized and it started to it started to work on on my soul somehow so that by the end by the time we were in like beer hall putched era you know way before the war early nazi times when everybody you know all the nazis are smiling like look at us we've got a clubhouse i mean it was so emotionally impactful and you know and it kept cutting away to him shooting the picture of Hitler again and it 
impossible not to think that Tarantino watched this at some point and was like, that, that's what I want to do. Except mm-hmm. instead of a picture of Hitler, <laughs> I want it to be a monkey mask of Hitler. But no, I found, by the end, I found that incredibly affecting. And when he stopped on the baby, when Hitler turned into a little baby and he stopped shooting, I had a million questions. Like, what do you do? Do, do you go back in time and kill baby Hitler? Isn't that just the same as killing a baby? Baby Hitler isn't Hitler. It's just a baby. And this kid is in a war where babies are getting killed all around him. What is that stopping? What is that helping? Like, right. And like the experiences that Hitler had in his life that led him to believe the things he believed. Like, what were those? And are they similar to what's happening to this kid? Right. Did the 20th century make Hitler? And if there, if we had killed Hitler, would there be another Hitler? A worse Hitler? Like, how am I asking all of those questions in this last three seconds of this crazy scene? So it, it's like what Wario is to Mario. You're you're positing that there could be a a war Hitler, a Whitler, an even wow. worse version. <laughs> but th- but that was that was an incredibly powerful because you know they they intercut some Holocaust footage too of yeah yeah people that were clearly not actors. And it was, uh, well, I wasn't. This was the stuff that you should get shown in history class in high school. Right. But that whole backwards Hitler thing, it it worked. Such a simple idea, but so powerful. Yeah. I, I went through a kind of similar arc with it where initially I thought, I was very worried that it was going to be corny and stupid. And the length of the montage, it really tells its own story, you know, like seeing it all in reverse, you know, the national borders taken down, the crowds of fawning Hitler fans in a pre-war Germany, like all of that stuff about like, when do you, when do you stop and say no, that we witnessed in the, in the scene of the entire village full of people being burned in their church is in that moment. I think crucially, he never feels catharsis from this either. Like he turns away and cries. And that's just like every other fucking part of this movie. Like you're never given any safe harbor. There is no catharsis at all. Yeah. For every film on Friendly Fire, there is its own custom rating system. And maybe this is a film that is the reason why. Because I don't think that you can rightfully compare this to any other movie experience um there are a lot of experiences in this film that that maybe encapsulate the the difficulty one may have in watching it and i think the thing that i tried to seize on was how much work it takes to watch a film like this like this film asks a lot of you as a viewer you have to be the sort of film goer that goes and watches something that you know you will not enjoy. To me, there was a scene early on, and I intentionally chose something that was not an atrocity so that we could we could get our arms around the idea of reviewing this film. But early on, Flora is made to do menial tasks around the camp. And one of the tasks that he does is cleaning a giant cauldron And in order to do that, he has to get in said cauldron to do it. And there's still cooking liquid in it. And it's probably still very warm because that is 
how cauldrons transmit heat. And this feels like the experience of this film. Like you could only, you could only really understand what happened here by getting inside it and seeing it as up close as its director wants you to. And I'm not comparing this film to any other when I say this, but we just saw a film where Jimmy Doolittle said at the end to another character, he's like, you know, maybe this is the moment in the war that will stop wars from happening ever again. And that moment in that film feels so quaint after watching this one. And it made me think of that moment because this is the film that needs to be used to prevent that from happening. Like, this is the sidecar to the atrocities that we see in high school history class that we don't see. We don't see the applause and the laughter of the Nazis when we're in high school for whatever reason. And I think if what you really want to do is stop wars from happening again, you need to see this kind of film and not the other kinds. And I don't recommend this film to anyone. And yet I recommend it to everyone at the same time. It's it's like necessary and required, but painful and difficult. And that makes it almost impossible to review. Like I, I, I honestly don't know how many cauldrons to give it. And I feel like just giving it four cauldrons for the like the fucking big swing that the director took in making this exactly the film he wanted to make and removing one cauldron from making it a perfect five cauldron film just because it's so hard because it's because he made this ad a viewer intending for them not to see it. And I think that's the conflict that might take the one cauldron away from me, like how aggressive it was in making a film viewer resistant to ever wanting to see it. So that's the tension in my review in watching it. It is fucking hard, but like a few other films in the Friendly Fire Project, I'm, I'm ultimately glad I saw it and I would rather not see it again. This is definitely a movie I don't see myself revisiting anytime soon. I feel like a uh, message received. Yeah. Um, I was really surprised about that thing you said about him not having any intention of anybody seeing it because it se- it seems so urgent. Well, he was resigned to it. Like it wasn't made right. with the intention, but I think he knew what was happening. 29 million people went to see this movie. Uh, sixth film in the overall box office rankings for 1986, apparently. Wow. And uh, I think that's an amazing thing to consider. I hope more people will see it and think about what it means about war and Nazism and and humanity. And I'm really glad that I got to see it. And uh, I don't think I have the same hesitation about recommending it. I think I would I would recommend it to everybody with the caveat that it's not going to be a fun two hours and 20 minutes. It's, it's hard, but it's worth it. And, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's getting the full five cauldrons from me. All right. I really sympathize Adam with your, I mean, what you said was that you don't know how to rate it. And I kind of thought you were going to just say that the cauldron or that our normal rating one out of five 
isn't applicable or doesn't apply somehow. You know, it, it does seem insufficient, like yeah. in the face of the scope of this thing. Yeah. In a way, I feel like you could have said one giant cauldron, but it's not out of five. I just <laughs> give this movie one giant cauldron. Um, people are keeping track of these ratings, though, oh, and that would really stick out in a bad way. I know. People, people, people. I had a really hard time knowing what to think of this movie. And, and you know, thinking of it as an anti-war movie, I don't really, I don't really read it quite as clearly that way. I know there are a lot of people who, it, it, I think it would be, it's tantalizing to say like, this is the greatest anti-war movie ever made. But I don't see that intention. It seems like it was made as a document of witness. And that witness element is important, but it, it isn't just as simple as anti-war, right? When we, when, we, uh, when we witness the Holocaust, we don't, you can't just reduce that to, I mean, I guess it is often reduced to never again, but there's something in that, in saying never again, that already feels somewhat resigned to the fact that, yeah, again, of course, again. Not this way, not, you know, not maybe in Poland and not with ovens, but it's already happened again and again. And so never again doesn't really, it, it, it takes on a very ironic element when you look at Laos and Rwanda. And so watching this movie does not seem to me to be the thing that is going to, you know, if you, if you made every high school class in America, watch this movie uh, before you graduated, it would have an, certainly a profound effect on people. But I don't think necessarily that that would dissuade a certain side of the, of the population from coveting war. And from, I mean, there are people that would watch this movie and kind of relish it, relish the freedom of that much latitude to be cruel. And I, I don't say it lightly to say that in our popular entertainment now, mass murder is a thing that we consume with relish. Just calling them zombies does not somehow make the act of murdering a million zombies in a movie, not the act of murdering a million things, right? We, we have turned the zombie movie or the superhero movie into a safe place where we can chomp our popcorn and our, and our pork chops and get the thrill, the visceral energy. Like you were saying, Adam, the sound of flies is something that is that's baked into us so that you can't hear it without knowing that it portends something bad. And that same, that same itch, we scratch it constantly by putting the thinnest proxy of like, Oh, you don't have to worry about us killing these hundred thousand people because they're zombies. They don't, they're not. And, but that's exactly what, you would say in a wartime situation, your enemy is not human. They're faceless. They don't have their own motivation. They're just following some, you know, they're just in control of some, some ice king 
or some, you know, desire for brains or whatever, you know, the dehumanizing of your, of your enemy is step number one. So we, we're living in a time right now where on the one hand we can say, Oh, in the, you know, we, we zoom out a little bit and we look at the political world and we think like, Oh, there are monsters in the world and how dare they? And, and they're so like, where do they come from even? But then we retreat into our fantasy worlds in front of our televisions and our video games. And so this, this movie is harrowing. It requires that we look at it for a second and say, oh, this is real. And not Game of Thrones and not World of Warcraft. And I don't know 20 years from now whether that will even be an important distinction. If we're able to do it all from a distance through television cameras, who knows? whether we'll ever feel this sort of visceral connection to death again. So I don't, it's hard for me to say that I think people should watch this. I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that we watched it. I'm glad that we talked about it. I don't want people to watch this and, and do it for the sport of feeling gross or feel, you know, or, or that whole, that whole, that whole line that it's tantalizing to say like, you need to watch this because of something because it's going to do something to you and maybe that'll make you a better person somehow and i just don't it's there's a whole class of film enthusiasts who are into films like these and solo and and like and their ill clue that sure it feels I like i don't understand it feels like faces of death in a way right yeah. it's just like oh you know it doesn't teach you anything really like if you can't sit in the quietude of your couch and spend a half an hour imagining what human beings can do to one another. If you need to see it to imagine it, I don't, you maybe, I mean, your imagination just isn't working that hard. So, I mean, I'm glad we watched it, but it is, um, it's uncomfortable at every level. And I think it's a tribute to what a good movie it is. Uh, the sound is uncomfortable. The, the camera work is uncomfortable. The acting is uncomfortable. The whole movie is just like a, a real, trial but i don't think we deserve it i don't think that it i don't think that it is as useful to us now as would be just interrogating the way we consume media now and how much it's desensitizing us to to what could be a a future that is a hundred times thousand times worse than this if you let yourself go through life like getting getting jollies out of watching millions die because it's in us all still. And it doesn't, it's not some political demagogue that comes along that lights it up. It's in us all. And it's not just the people on the other side. And I'm not, you know, you can write me as many letters as you want about me being both sides, but people consuming zombie movies are, they might vote right, but in their hearts, there's a sickness. There is a human capacity for this that is, Sadly, universal. Maybe we should let Skynet take over. <laughs> but if you were to rate the film, John. One giant cauldron. Wow. Big enough Whoa. to encompass five cauldrons. Wow. Damn. I suppose it's appropriate that this film broke the scale to some degree. Yeah. There it is. 
I don't know. I'm really sorry for that long soliloquy, but I don't think we can just talk about it in isolation. Mama! Ben. Yeah. Were you able to find a guy in this film? Yes. Uh, When they go on their adventure to, for some reason, put a mud Hitler in the... At that crossroads, mm-hmm. one of the guys says, don't tickle me or my fart is going to flatten Europe. <laughs> one of the few laugh lines in the movie, but yeah. boy. It hits. Fucking hits. <laughs> That's my guy. How about you, John? At the at the scene at the beginning of the movie when um, he's kind of sitting there in his house and it's clear that he is going to enlist and his mom is just raking him over the coals. How can you leave us, you know, like just really trying everything she can to make him feel bad so that he'll stay unaware, of course, that if he did, that he would be in a big pile of bodies um, before the day was out or before the week was out. And she goes and she gets him a hatchet and she brings it back and says, kill us now. And she grabs the two little girls out of bed, makes them stand up in the corner. The one sign in the movie that he has a certain intelligence and cleverness he picks up the hatchet and he looks over at the little girls and he just and his mom is raging you know and he just gives them a little look and a little gesture with the hatchet that says you know i'm gonna kill you that betrays his whole relationship with his sisters how much they love one another how they share a kind of feeling that their mom is is ridiculous and is being <laughs> hysterical. You know, he does, the, he makes a little joke just with his, just with a, with a flash of facial expression and with just a tiny jiggle of the hatchet and the little girls are delighted by it. And it breaks the, it breaks the tension of, of the moment and it makes it feel just for a second, like everything's going to be okay. That the little girls are going to be okay. That he's going to be Okay. Um, because it's a moment of normalcy and I think it's a, you know, it's a brilliant moment of filmmaking because somehow he got these two little four-year-old girls to be very effective actors in that moment because, you know, I don't know. The whole thing was great and I can't, I'm not sure if I can pick a guy. If I have to, I guess it's the twins. I guess it's the twin girls. But that little that little moment, like I I hearkened back to it many times in the movie, where I was like, "Can't we just go back to, can't we just go back to that, yeah, that, that moment when things were still okay?" Boy, the mom doesn't know how right she was in that scene. That it would have been better for her had he killed them with that hatchet. Yeah, uh, I am with you, John. I had such a difficult time finding a guy that. Uh, that I didn't choose one. I instead to pick uh, the viewer as the guy because like there's no one in the film that resembles me or anyone I know. It's, it's just a totally alien environment. There's so much suffering and brutality and it's so depressing and it's so relentless that I couldn't ever really like, I don't know who asked the question. I think it was you, Ben, but like, like who who did you feel common cause with who were you rooting for in the film and it was almost the film was so 
brutal that it made it difficult. And I think the point of view was part of that, right? Like when, when you are the camera, it's a strange sense of attachment and detachment all at once. And it kind of took me out of the idea of finding a guy in a conventional way. And so it may be cheating the guy system to say it, but my guy is just the viewer of this film. That's me, you, or anyone else. Heavy, dude. Yeah, so that's going to push that paper to like 12 pages, I think. <laughs> Let's watch something less that's less of a bummer next time. What do you say? We can never be sure. Yeah. That's true. Uh, it, it all depends on you, John. Well, one thing we have going for us is that we are uh, taking World War II off the list. We've oh, watched no. three in a row. That's right. John, if you will randomly select something between 1 and 105, I think. Uh, oh, wow. The 100-sided die almost comes comes perfectly into play. Here we go. Ready? Yeah. <laughs> Number 70. Number 70 is a movie set Amidst the fall of the Ottoman Empire. That's exciting. From 2016, directed by Terry George. It's a film called The Promise. Interesting. Oh, Oscar Isaac is the star of this movie, it looks like. Whoa. And Christian Bale? How did I not hear about this? Huh. Okay, well, that will be next week. I uh, don't have any more information about the, the movie to tell you, but... Uh, We'll let Rob take it from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. For the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fires and Maximum Fun Podcast. It's hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you like supporting the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate to join the squad. You can get all of the bonus content from Maximum Fun by donating, as well as our monthly Pork Chop episode. When posting about the show on social media, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.